Okay, thank you so much. This morning we've got Phil Stinson. Phil spoke to us back in the fall in one of our meetings, and we got started late, and we just never got finished. So we've invited Phil to come back. It's tax season. I turned some stuff into my accountant this week, and I'm hoping he's going to come back and say, Paulette, you don't owe the government any more money. So uh, they've taken all they need to take from you. So, uh, But Phil, I'm going to turn it over to you. <coughs> Well, I, uh, in sort of taking a cue from Josh this morning, uh, I felt like when I spoke last time, I re it was kind of a, a, a secular type uh, teaching. So I thought I would try to incorporate a little bit of scripture this time into, <clears throat> into the class. So I felt like, well, what better scripture... Then uh, Mark 12, 14 through 17, if you don't remember that, I will read it for you. <clears throat> Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? I know that's an issue that we really struggle with right now. <clears throat> Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him the coin. He asked them, Who, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So I'm hoping that that's the way you'll feel after this class is over. You will be amazed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> but I guess that is probably one of the um, most quoted scriptures when it talks about, when people talk about. <clears throat> the legitimacy of paying taxes to the government. So I guess in some way this is my ministry, helping people carry out this charge by Jesus to pay uh, to the government what is the government's. Okay, <clears throat> let's start. I thought that maybe what I would do, and kind of where I left off last time, I was talking about the uh, Tax Act. Now, 2000, it was the Tax Act enacted in 2017 that related to the tax years 2018 and, 2000, well, 2018 and going forward. <clears throat> and just kind of go over those points or the key changes in the tax law um, and how they might Im impact you. And then uh, something that had not occurred when I spoke last time was... Um, the uh, Congress has now passed what they call the SECURE Act. And I don't know if you've heard about that. It relates to, well, I love the way they come up with these names. This one is the SECURE Act. It stands for Setting Every Community for Retirement Enhancement. SECURE. So I just feel, I feel much better about it just reading <laughs> Just knowing that it's named that, I just feel so much better about my, my, my retirement. Okay. 
Well, I'll try to go through these as quickly as possible so I don't run out of time. Um, the tax brackets uh, for 2018 were adjusted significantly from 2017 and then were adjusted again for 2019. Um, they have incorporated a, an indexing, uh, not necessarily tied to inflation, but tied to uh, call it a, a general cost of living. But anyway, the tax brackets are now... 10%, 12%, 22%, 24, 32, 35, 37. And that's a significant uh, expansion of the tax brackets from where they were uh, before and a significant reduction of the tax brackets. So now, <clears throat> if you make, um, for a single person, uh, if you make under, or, or if you have taxable income of less than $9,700, you will pay no tax. With the uh, with the uh, uh, well, uh, with the raising of the standard deduction uh, for a single person to twenty uh, to twelve thousand two hundred dollars. So now you've got that twelve thousand two hundred dollars plus ninety seven hundred dollars. So roughly twenty two twenty three thousand dollars. If you make that, you will owe no tax. <coughs> So, which is sort of a change, and for married people, now that number gets up to uh, the new standard deduction for uh, for married people is twenty four thousand four hundred dollars. So you've got nineteen thousand four hundred starts the first tax bracket. So you got twenty four nine and nineteen four. So you're roughly at forty three thousand dollars before you would only tax if you are married filing jointly. In addition to that, if you have Social Security income and your Social Security income um, does not put you over, well, let me, ha let me see how to exactly phrase that. Um, if, if your Social Security income does not, does not push you over a threshold of $25,000 as a single person or $32,000 as a, a joint uh, or a married filing jointly. I'm really confusing this point a little bit here. <clears throat> you don't have to include the Social Security in your income. So what that happens is, it really you can get up to almost $60,000 uh, of income before you would only tax um, if Social Security and your other tax don't get you over these thresholds. So, and if, to, you, and if they do, you do get over that, or what kind of exemption? Well, then, then you start out at a 10% tax bracket. So uh, for the amount of money that you earn over that, then you'll pay 10% of tax. Okay. For just the amount that's over. Okay. Well, let's get back. Okay, so... Okay, going back, like I said, the standard deduction, uh, the, one of the changes in the tax laws, the standard deduction went from $13,000 for married to $24,000. First it went to $24,000 for 2019 and went $24,400. So it was an increase of $400 there. They eliminated the personal exemptions. So it used to be if, there were, if you were married filing jointly, you would get an exemption for yourself and for your spouse. 
So that was another $8,300 that you would get you know, on top of the uh, standard deduction of $13,000. So you would have roughly uh, $21,300 before you would get into a taxable income situation. Now with the new law, they did, did away with the personal exemptions. So no matter how many dependents you have, you don't really get any credit for that. <clears throat> They've increased the standard deduction to $24,400. So now <clears throat> you actually get a, an additional, if it's just you and your husband or you and your wife, <clears throat> you get roughly uh, $3,000 more in deductions than you had under the old tax law. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. One of the other changes they made was to the capital gains tax rates and brackets, uh, which this one was, was fairly significant. Uh, if you have capital gains and, um, and your taxable income is uh, less than $78,000 for married filing jointly or $39,000 for single, then those capital gains are not taxed. Okay, that, that makes sense to everybody? Okay. If your income, <clears throat> if your income falls between, uh, for a single person, between that 39,000 and 434,000, then long-term capital gains are taxed at 15%. And if it's over $434,000, then you get hit with a 20% tax rate. So you'll <clears throat> what you'll do is when, well, when your accountant does your tax return, there again, he'll, he, he knows all this, he'll plug it in, it will come out right. But basically, if you're, if you're making some strategies and you know your income is gonna fall within uh, that 40 to $430,000 range, you can figure that 15% of that capital gains is going to be taxed or it will be taxed at a 15% rate. Okay. If it's married, <clears throat> it's between 78,000 and 488,000 where the 15% bracket falls into play over 488,000 then you have 20%. That makes sense? Any questions? Excuse me? 23.8%. Twenty three point eight percent. Twenty three point eight percent. Twenty percent plus three point eight. Oh yes. The three point the Medicare tax, that's true. Uh, yes. <clears throat> there is a on um, on investment income above certain thresholds, there's a three point eight percent additional Medicare tax that is charged on, on that investment income. Uh, that also includes qualified dividends, which when you get your brokerage statement, they'll say dividends, and then the next box will say claim how much of those ordinary dividends are qualified dividends. The qualified dividends, are you're able to take advantage of those capital gains rates as opposed to just your ordinary income tax rates. Okay. Uh, there's probably, you've probably seen on your broker's statement too, where the next box over is called capital gain distributions. Those are also subject to the capital gains tax rates. 
you'll see another <coughs> box on there that says non-dividend distributions. Okay, those are not taxed. Just if you were wondering when you, you know, because I, I, I'm sure, like a lot of my clients, they just hand me the broker statements, you know, do that. Well, if you ever wanted to know, that non-dividend distribution box, the amount in there is not taxed. Any questions? Okay. <clears throat> what that does, not to not to complicate the the uh, the situation, but non-dividend distributions will reduce your basis in your in the stock that you own, so that when you do sell it, there would be more gain at that point in time. But that means you've gotten a distribution that is not taxed. It just reduces your basis in in the stock that you own. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Yes. No. Um, what about IRAs minimum that required minimum distribution? RMD. Pardon the me? RMDs. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to get to that with because okay. uh, because those uh, that changed with the uh, new Secure Act. Okay. Um, the child tax credit. Under the new tax law, that increased from $1,000 per child to $2,000 per child. That was to make up for the elimination of the personal exemptions. Uh, like when I was talking, back when I was talking about the, the standard deduction, you don't get personal exemptions anymore. To offset that for families that have multiple children, like my daughter and son-in-law who have five, that was a <clears throat> that was that hurt them not being able to claim five uh, personal exemptions. So what the government did, they came in and said, "Okay, we'll give you a child tax credit. Used to be a thousand dollars per child. Now they've increased that to two thousand dollars, and that's a credit, not a deduction. So uh, it basically offsets not being able to take them as a deduction. They now get a tax credit." One of the things that they did too, in addition to that, they increased the, um, there used to be a phase out for the child tax credit. If you made over a certain level, then you didn't get the, the credit. So they've increased that for married for filing jointly to $400,000. If you, if you make up to $400,000, you get the full tax credit. If you go over $400,000, it's phased out. Okay. One of the other um, parts of the law, which I really liked, uh, although I'm not, it will probably come into play at some point in time with all my grandchildren, they have changed the education credit uh, related to the 529 education savings plan. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That was a program where <clears throat> you, could, um, you could put money into this savings account and it would grow tax-free. You didn't get a deduction, but it would grow tax-free. And then when, you, uh, when you, your uh, beneficiary incurred educational expenses, college tuition, at that point in time, that was all it was, under the old law, that's all it was used for, was, was, for, um, was for college tuition. Uh, you could take the full amount out tax-free. Uh, so you got the benefit of the earnings of your account. 
under the new tax law, they allowed um, deductions or withdrawals, distributions for uh, elementary school and high school, which I thought was a, a, a nice uh, change. So now, if you want to make a contribution, you can put that in there, and then you can use that if they want to go to Lipscomb or Brentwood Academy or Innsworth or wherever, you can take the money out and you can pay that tuition uh, and um, use those funds from those accounts. One of the changes also is that uh, the annual distribution limit from a 529 is now $10,000. The annual contribution limit is $15,000, which basically matches uh, the annual gift tax exclusion. So you can put $15,000 into a, a 529 savings account with no gift tax. You can put more than that in the account, but then you would be subject to gift taxes. Okay. One of the things that they also changed is you can do a one-time $75,000 contribution into a 529 plan. Um, and that's, <clears throat> and that is, um, it's, it's basically allows you to put five years worth of contributions without any gift tax uh, consequences. Does that make sense? I'm rattling off a bunch of stuff here. Please stop me. What I'm sorry. The fund that it's a 529 about? savings plan. For? For education. It's an education okay. savings plan. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Is that per child? Excuse me? Is that per child? Yes. That's per child. Okay. Any other questions? And please stop me at any point in time and ask a question uh, so that I, I, I'm getting uh, just so that I can know that um, y'all are understanding what I'm saying. Okay, <clears throat> let's see here. Um, they changed uh, the the. Um, oh, oh. Let me go back. Okay, that was the change to the uh, the education plan under the the. Um, the new tax act also they changed itemized deductions. They increased the standard to 24-4, but they eliminated some of the itemized deductions that you could take. <clears throat> they reduced the mortgage interest uh, to where you could only deduct interest on mortgages up to $750,000. It had been a million. They reduced that to $750. If you had a mortgage before uh, the enactment or before two th uh, for before 2018, you could still use the million dollar limit, but for mortgages after 2018, you have to use the $750,000 limit. It eliminated the ability to deduct uh, home equity line of credit interest as mortgage interest. Uh, it increased the uh, charitable deduction threshold where you were previously <coughs> limited to 50% of your adjusted gross income, was your, your charitable contributions were limited to that. They've increased that to 60 from 50%. <coughs> uh, for medical expenses, um, there was a 10% threshold of medical expenses, 10% of your adjusted gross income before you could deduct 
medical expenses for, for <coughs> itemized deductions. They reduced that threshold to 7.5%. Um, the one that's gotten a lot of uh, talk is they reduced, or didn't reduce, they limited the state and local income tax deduction to $10,000 um, for all of the, the uh, taxpayers in, in high uh, state income <coughs> tax states that really limited their ability to deduct, uh, or to, to be able to access that through their itemized deductions. And they eliminated uh, casualty and theft losses, uh, employee expenses, um, and any of the deductions that related, or miscellaneous deductions that related to the 2% uh, floor. If you remember what that means, uh, it used to be you could deduct certain uh, employee expenses uh, if they exceeded 2% of your adjusted gross income. So if you had, let's say, your adjusted gross income was $100,000, if you had miscellaneous itemized deductions, employee expenses where you had to go to the post office as part of your uh, work and you didn't get reimbursed for that mileage, you could deduct, <clears throat> you previously could, could deduct that as an itemized deduction if it exceeded 2% of your adjusted gross income. So if it exceeded, in this case, $100,000, 2% would be $2,000. So if it exceeded that $2,000, you could deduct whatever exceeded that $2,000. Didn't affect a lot of people, but some people with a lot of itemized or a lot of employee type expenses, uh, it limited what they could do. Uh, and it eliminated moving expenses as a, as a deduction. So if you were, uh, used to be, if you could, if you were moving from, um, a state to state or even city to city uh, and uh, incurred a lot of moving expenses with uh, furniture, whatever, you could deduct that. They've eliminated that under the new tax law. One of the other things that they did too, uh, if you do not have uh, health insurance, there used to be a, they used to call it the Obamacare penalty. Uh, they have eliminated the penalty. So if you don't have health insurance now, there's no penalty for not having health insurance. Let me ask you something about yes. individual um, uh, medical expenses. Okay. Um, if you fall within the guidelines, if your expenses reach whatever that was, can uh -huh. you deduct all the expenses or just the part that's over the... It's just the part that's over the threshold. Okay. Okay. Before you go on, on that yes. educational thing, yeah. if you put aside some money, say for a grandchild or a great-grandchild or something, mm -hmm. and it it's in there, and you have a tax credit for that, right? You have a, you, you don't get a you deduction. Don't, you, you don't get a deduction? No, it's, it's, no, mm -hmm. you okay. don't get a deduction. But well, the, what is the benefit of doing that? Well, if you put it into, let's say, a mutual fund, you put in $5,000, and in 10 years, that may grow to, let's say, $8,000. Well, the earnings that you've had, the $3,000 of earnings, were tax-free. You, you wouldn't get a statement from that account saying you earned this much in, in dividends or capital gains. So any money that you make in that account is tax-free, 
and then when it's just and then you distribute it. Uh, One more question mm -hmm. on that same thing. What if when that child grows up, they do not use that money for education? Say it's a college fund, and they decide not to go to college. Okay. Well, what then, happens? Then? then when the money is uh, when the money is uh, distributed, then the earnings would be taxable. Okay. So if I'm long gone. What happens to it? <laughs> it just goes in my state. It will, you know. You know that that's a good question. I'm not really sure okay. uh, it, where that where those funds, if they get grandfathered into some type of account that would allow for later distribution mm -hmm. uh, for education expenses. I'll check on that and see. Wouldn't okay. it be in the child's name though? That 529 would be in the child's name as the yeah. owner. Yes. So. Well, it probably would then become part of the. Uh, uh, that that would be an inheritance to that child. Right. Even if they didn't use it for college. That's correct. And they would pay the tax on the on the earnings. Okay. You know, you know, I, I uh, at times I forget how boring this type of stuff can really be. So, bear, bear with me. Okay. <clears throat> One of the other big parts of the Tax Act was um, the implementation of what they called uh, the Qualified Business Income Deduction. Uh, the Tax Act uh, was very generous in terms of tax cuts to corporate entities. They reduced uh, a lot of the corporate rates from 35% to 21%. Um, that is, if you were a, a what they call a C corporation, a, a regular corporate entity. Um, a lot of people complained about that, that a lot of the uh, businesses uh, now are set up as uh, LLCs, limited liability companies, or S-corporations where the income from that entity flows through to the owners and are taxed at their uh, individual tax rates. And so to balance that out, uh, what they did is they implemented what's called a qualified business income deduction where if you have a small business that is uh, an LLC or an S-Corp, what they call a flow-through entity, then you're allowed a 20% deduction based on the, the uh, income from that entity. So if you are, so if, if you're a small business owner and your only income is from your business, and let's say you make $100,000, <clears> then you would have to, you would be taxed at your regular individual income tax rates, which might be more than, than that 21% corporate rate. So what they did is they said, okay, you can take a 20% tax deduction for that entity's income. So instead of $100,000 of taxable income, you would have $80,000, 20% less, an 80% uh, uh, taxable income situation there. So it kind of gave them, it, it tried to balance out that uh, rate reduction that corporate entities uh, were afforded uh, to that small business owner that uh, utilizes the flow-through entity. Okay. One of the things that they, I won't get into all of the 
the um, specifics, but um, I, can, I can just see that the um, I can just see the congressman sitting around in a room talking about this and them saying, "Well, that's really not right. If a guy's set up and he's a doctor, he doesn't need a tax deduction. He ought to pay more in taxes." Or if it's a, um, let's say, a, a musician or an entertainer, you know, that set up his business as an LLC, you know, they shouldn't. So what they did is they designated about 10 different professions that would not be eligible for this qualified business income deduction. Attorneys, doctors, entertainers, uh, sports figures, uh, to name just a few. <clears throat> now, they didn't want, what they really wanted to do was not allow it for the really wealthy ones, you know, the LeBron James or, you know, the, I don't know, the, the, the entertainers, the Brad Pitts or whatever. So, what they did is they will allow those for those specific uh, professions up to a point around $400,000. If you make less than $400,000, you can do, you can use the 20% deduction. If you make over that, then you, then you can't. So, um, it, it's kind of interesting the way some of these tax laws, how, how they come up with these unique exceptions and quirks to what should be fairly easy and straightforward. They really try to make them a lot more complicated. I, we, we used to have kind of a joke. I remember the first time, maybe it was back during the 80s, when they did the first major tax simplification act. I don't know if y'all remember that. I think it was when Reagan was in office. <clears throat> and being in that arena, we all find found it kind of comical that they would call it the tax simplification act because it made it more complicated than it had ever been before. So... <laughs> And, and to a certain degree, that's what that this did, too. They, they're trying to get it simple, but they just seem to make it more complicated. Yes? Uh, who develops this plan? I mean, I can't imagine a committee. Is there a... Yes. Who the, does this? The House Ways and Means Committee will all get into a room. There's probably about 30 of them. And they just... They all have their little uh, list of things that they want to see done and they get in there and just beat each other up until they come up with something that everybody agrees to. These are congressmen and senators? Well, <clears throat> there's a group of senators that are doing it and then a group of congressmen that are doing it and they're doing it separately, although there are communications because a lot of times the bills are, are fairly similar when they come out. And then the difference is they get together and hash out the differences and then they both pass the bills and it goes to the president to sign. And a lot of times it is, uh, I had a, a friend of mine that was um, involved in the political arena and uh, was more involved in the, in the first tax act, the one back in the 80s. And he said it, it really was, it was just everybody in there with their own little list and they just beat each other up and then some of the compromises are made uh, over an after-dinner drink. You know, it's oh, just... Is it bipartisan? It, excuse me? Is it bipartisan? 
Well, it's it's no, it's whichever whichever. Um, well, to a certain degree, it is, but the party that is in power or has the most representatives has more votes or has more people on the committee than the minority party. So they can outvote the minority party. They all get to discuss, but when the when, at the end of the day, um, if there is a dispute, the party that has the most members can generally dictate, uh, you know, what they want. How often do they change this? Is it not every four years? No, 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 no. It's uh, we really haven't had. Uh, there was the, the the major tax act in. Uh, in the 80s, and I believe there was another one during the night, about about once every decade or so, whenever it becomes kind of a hot button item, uh, then then they'll do it. Uh, I would say most of these. The one thing about this, this latest tax act had a had a five year um, life to it. So, in five years, within five years, they've either got to make it permanent. Or let it revert back to where where it was before the tax act. So that will make. Let's see. This was done in 2017. So in a couple of years, there'll be some more gnashing of teeth as they try to decide on whether to keep this in place or to make it revert back to where it was before this tax act was enacted. So How do they have to revert back. Can't they just move on to a different? Well, yes, they can. Yeah. Yes, they can. Yeah, at at that point in time, they've either. I mean, if they don't do anything, then it will revert back, okay. or they can change it, make it permanent, or make some revisions to it. It was kind of interesting. Yes, I just wanted to ask: Are there are there lobbyists that can affect those committees? Oh yes. Oh oh, definitely. <laughs> That's what I thought. So maybe corporate entities or. It was interesting. I have a I have an architect friend, who. Um, who apparently was very happy with the uh, architect lobby because uh, of those professions that were designated, uh, they were able to get architects uh, excluded from that list. So, I, you know, you don't know who, you don't know where all the influences are, but yes, there are definitely influences. Given the on this one uh, on this tact act expiring in five years, there was another interesting. Uh, tax law that was set up like that where it had a 10-year phase-out and it had to do with uh, the estate taxes. And I don't know, you may have remember hearing about it, but there was a, um, there was a provision, uh, I think this was when one of the Bushes was in, in power, uh, they enacted uh, a tax law that was phasing, uh, phasing out or increasing the exemption for estate taxes. And so um, it had a 10-year life to it. And if they didn't do anything in 10 years, then the estate tax was eliminated. Well, nobody really wanted that to happen, but uh, they thought that the 10-year threshold would give them uh, incentive to get something done. Well, there was so much wrangling and so much dissension over the estate taxes that they didn't get anything done. And so for one year, and, and they had one year that there was no estate tax. 
And it just so happened that, I don't know if you remember a guy by the name of George Steinbrenner. He used to be the owner of the New York Yankees. He died in that gap year and probably saved his heirs, I think they estimated, saved his heirs almost a billion dollars in estate taxes. So, what is so the estate tax now? The, uh, the tax now is 40% if you're, for your estate that it is in excess of $11,400,000. So they have, they to a great degree, you know, it probably won't affect half the people in here. So. I don't think we have any lobbyists. So anyway, I, I, uh, so I've almost done it. Yes. Yes. Are you familiar with 1031 exchanges? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, um, I did not spend all of the proceeds from the sale of farmland. Um, Corps of Engineers bought flooded land from years ago. Uh, I did not spend all the money on property, on the exchange property. So uh -huh. taxes have already been paid on that. But when I get rid, when I get ready to get rid of my property that I did purchase, mm -hmm. is the percentage of um, taxes that I will pay on that, on, on the, the proceeds, uh, the difference mm -hmm. between what I paid and, and what it sells for. Mm -hmm. Is that a set percentage or will it, uh, will it be determined by the rest of my income? It'll be determined by the rest of your income. If wherever that gain amount would fall in the brackets, <coughs> then that will dictate which capital gain brackets you'll be in. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. All right. I will go very quickly. I've run out of time again. Sorry. Uh, to the SECURE Act, which was passed in December, which really surprised me because I didn't think really anything was getting done in December during all the impeachment stuff. But they did pass what was called the SECURE Act. And the SECURE Act had some provisions that uh, were interesting to most people here. One, it increased the age of the required minimum distributions. You used to have to start that at 70 and a half. Now you don't have to start that until you're 72. Oh, great. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh, excuse me? What if you've already started? If you've already started, then you have to continue. That's why I said, oh, great. Yeah. I thought one of the best provisions uh, that was changed is they used to, to uh, you could not contribute to an IRA after you reach 70 and a half. They've eliminated that age limit. Now you can then contribute to an IRA at any age. Doesn't change your required minimum distribution uh, at 72, but you can you can put in an offset if if you if you want to do that. So you can well, put in there as long as you want to, and not have to pull it out at a certain time. Excuse me. An IRA. Uh huh. You can keep putting that in, and after a certain time, five years or so, you don't have to start pulling it out. Well, you have to start pulling it out uh, after you reach 72. How is it the amount? What, how is that amount determined? The, and the reason I ask is that I, when I was with one broker, I had one amount, and when I went to another one, it was vastly different. 
So how is that determined? Well, that that's interesting because it should they should have used the same calculation and the amount should have been the same. So I don't. Yeah, it's 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 an actuarial formula based on life expectancy, and uh, it can change, but it they should have been using the same formula. So I'm not sure why that would be. Well, it's become less now. It seems to me it would have become more. Well, it could be less because of changes in the actuarial tables. Oh, okay. So, okay. I don't know. Hey, yeah, that's what another. You, want. you can tell what you want. So when you die, what's left over will go to your estate. Now, with that Secure Act, you have a 10-year. They have to get it all out within 10 years. But that's on an inherited IRA. Left over in your yeah. into your estate, right? Okay. The um, one of the things too that um, was nice is they will allow uh, penalty-free uh, withdrawals of up to five thousand dollars for a birth or an adoption. They've added that to the, some of the penalty-free withdrawal exceptions. And they will allow up to uh, $10,000. Um, uh, they will allow up to $10,000 deduction from a 529 education plan for payment on student debt. It's kind of a, a kind of a back end deal that will let you let you go in and use t up to $10,000 of your 529 to pay off student debt. Uh, there was also um, yeah, one of the changes was for the if you inherited a uh, an IRA other than a spousal inheritance, if you inherited an IRA, uh, you used to have a lot more flexibility. Your the deduction related to uh, or your required distribution from your inherited IRA was based on your life expectancy. Now it's it's a set ten years. You have to deduct. You have to withdraw all of an inherited IRA within ten years. You don't have to do it evenly. It's just within ten years you have to take every all of it out. So, from a tax planning standpoint, if you know there's going to be a year that your uh, taxable income is going to be way down, then you can, you know, choose to use that year to to take out uh, or withdraw money from your IRA, an inherited IRA. Except for spousal inheritance, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Those those you can take out under the same uh, uh, required minimum distribution laws. But if you hire, if you uh, inherited one from your parents or uh, a sibling, then those would fall under this ten-year rule. Looks like I've gone five minutes over. Any questions? Yeah, what? <laughs> <coughs> Okay. Well, I hope it has been helpful. There again, hopefully, uh, if you were here last time, you got my contact information. If you do have any questions, email me, call me. I'll be happy to answer questions if you think of something later this afternoon or whatever and would like a question answered, I'll be happy to do that. Okay, thank you all so much. Next Sunday, we are going to have, uh, we're going to be singing. Yay. It's going to be like the old hymn, Christian hymns number two, all the old songs that we've got in here.
Sunday morning. 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 Sunday morning